0: Hello and welcome back to the Conversation Podcast for the San Diego Union-Tribune. I'm your host, Abby Hamblin, and this is a special episode because we recorded it live at the Union-Tribune's third annual Festival of Books. If you missed it, you will have to make sure to attend next year, but we're going to give you a little taste of what it was like with the audio from a panel I moderated on young adult fiction. The two authors were the phenomenal Emily Skrutsky and Kirsten White. Emily Skretzky is a Los Angeles-based author of The Abyss Surrounds Us and its sequel, The Edge of the Abyss, and also the standalone novel Whole Metal Girls. Her next one, Bonds of Brass, will be published in the spring of 2020. Kirsten White is a local to San Diego. She's the New York Times best-selling author of numerous books for young readers, including the And I Darken trilogy, The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer novels Slayer and Chosen, and the upcoming The Guinevere Deception. We talked about what makes young adult fiction so amazing, about their careers as authors, and much more. Just a heads up for our listeners, Emily Skrutsky speaks first on this episode, and Kirsten White follows. I hope you will enjoy. Here's the conversation we had at the San Diego Union Tribune's Festival of Books. This is a YA panel. I'm sure there's some big fans of YA in the crowd here. And in reading your books, in the world building and some of the characters that you have and the decisions you've made with the books you've written, it occurred to me that you could be writing for any audience, and I'm sure that any age of reader could enjoy your work. I certainly did. And I wonder why YA?
1: I think that YA, more than any other genre, really hits at um, that. It's that crucible moment of like, who am I as a person? What's really gonna define me Um, that, we're exploring in these stories We're we're hitting these characters at this crisis point of, you know, I've grown up my whole life one way and now I am getting to an adult, I'm getting, I'm approaching an adult understanding of the world and it is shifting my perspective. It is changing me in some way and I have to deal with that. Uh, And that's always a really exciting, like for me personally, I really like writing um, character arcs and writing uh, characters who really uh, go through something versus, I don't know. Um, So it's exciting to delve into um, that crucible moment.
2: Um, There are a few things that I really love about YA. Um, One of them is, a a few years ago, I read an adult novel. And it was about a man who kept getting a lot of bladder infections. (laughs) Because some tube somewhere wasn't straight the way it was supposed to be. It kind of meandered. That was the whole book. That's what it was about. That was the plot. That was like the inciting incident. That was the driving character motivation. Like, somebody wrote a 400-page novel about getting a lot of bladder infections. And I was like, what did I just read? And why did I read it? Anyway, um, you can check it out at your local library. Uh, um, Thanks. (laughs) But the thing that I love about YA is, um, first and foremost, in YA, you tell a good story. And if what you're writing doesn't serve the story, then it doesn't belong there. Because I don't know if you guys have teenagers or if you are a teenager. I have teenagers. As soon as they lose interest in something, like, they are done, they are done with it forever, they never care again, and there is nothing you can do to make them care again, um, you know, my, my teenagers are delightful, they've lost interest in me, I was like, do you guys want to come to a book festival with me, and they were like, like, they didn't even answer, that's how little they care, um, anyway, it's fine, other people's teenagers like me, so it's okay, (laughs) um, (laughs) but, but I just love that, like, it has to be exciting. It has to move forward. You have to have momentum, whether it's a quiet story or you know Robocop in space. Like, there has to be things happening, and it has to move. Because otherwise, your readers are going to put it down. And I think that's what I, what I love the most about YA, is first and foremost, you tell a good story. Like, it could be deep. It could have more meaning. Like There's all sorts of levels. But it has to be fun, and probably not entirely based around bladder infections. My next book, by the way, just kidding. My next book is kidney infection, so it's really different. Just kidding, no.
0: So in your most recent works, uh, in both Whole Metal Girls, which Emily wrote, and then um, Slayer, which Kirsten wrote, um, we're dealing with teen girls who take on enormous responsibility. And to your point about um, kind of the coming of age story, probably every reader experienced that personally in one way or another, Um, but so many stories do include that, but you two found really interesting ways to bring some complexity to that, especially with young women. And so I wanted to ask you about the practice of writing about that kind of of coming-of-age story that's so familiar to so many, but the way you chose to go about it, because you both found ways to really bring, especially you switching between the perspective of two girls and then um, you having two young sisters. I just love to read about the way you used not, it wasn't just the classic thing we've heard over and over again, so how did you approach that?
1: I actually started Home Metal Girls in one perspective. I thought it was just going to be Aisha's story. It was going to be this girl who you know, gives up her body to become a cyborg warrior because she needs to the funds to take o- care of her sick brother. Um, and I was kind of riding by the seat of my pants, uh, figuring out what the story was going to be. And she encountered this absolutely horrible, horrible girl um, who's just, she's elitist, she's classist, she, she's uh, just... Uh, the worst possible person for um, Asia to encounter in her um, training as a Scala warrior. and um, But the more we talked to this girl, the more I realized, wait, there's something going on under the surface. She's not entirely just a horrible, horrible person. She's got some psychology to her that's actually interesting. And uh, the second I realized what that was, I went back and rethought the entire book and brought her perspective into it. Um, And it's really fun to be able to play them off each other. Um, It was fun to work with that contrast uh, because they are two very, very different people. One of them grew up in poverty, worked as a janitor, um, is trying to take care of her family, and one of them has holes in her memory and only knows that she's better than everybody else.
2: Um, so most of my books center around teenage girls who are on the cusp of adulthood, who are, who are claiming who they are and, and what impact they're going to have on the world. And um, that's a big theme in YA. That, and it's a theme that I love because I feel like teenage girls are one of the most powerful forces on the planet, but they're also one of the most looked down on. Like if, some, if teenage girls love something, that thing does incredibly well, and everyone else looks down on it. So it's, it's interesting watching how they're the driving force behind like pop culture and all those things. But then if teenage girls like something, it's inherently lesser. Because we devalue what teenage girls love because Mm -hmm. we devalue teenage girls themselves. So I love telling stories about these teenage girls claiming who they are and their power and their place in the world. And that's one of the reasons why I like writing genre fiction. So so with Slayer, it's a a tie-in to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I watched it as a teenager. And it made such a tremendous impact on me. Not because, you know, it it was really fun to watch. There were the monsters. There were the love interests, whatever. Um, And I love the fact that it was this tiny teenage blonde girl who could destroy anything. But what I loved even more was that the show valued her. It valued her feelings and her relationships and her friendships and all of those things um, had as much weight as the fact that you know she was preventing apocalypses and slaying vampires and you know all those very normal teenage experiences and so um, that meant a lot to me because it was a show that said you matter like the way that you feel about things matters and had a tremendous impact on me both personally and you know as as a storyteller and so to get to create a story in the Buffy world was you know, a tremendous privilege for me and and I try to really capture that sense that... this slayer's power is not in the fact that she is a slayer and has you know, more strength and coordination and sometimes visions, whatever. It's the fact that she's a teenage girl and she loves and she experiences everything with her whole self and her whole heart. And that's really where the power and the strength comes from. It's not the mystical forces. It's the teenage girl forces. Um, and, and, that's, you know, and I love being able to be part of that storytelling tradition.
0: Do we have any Buffy fans in the audience, by the way? Mm-hmm. Yes. Very nice. So um, I would be curious to ask what you, besides Buffy, what did you fall in love with as teenagers? What did you, what were you reading? What connected with you? And do you kind of carry that with you as authors now?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously I love Buffy. I used to like hurry home from school to watch it, which implied that I had other things to be doing and I didn't. Um, But I I really loved reading. I read everything that I could get my hands on. And I read um, like the things that I felt like I should be reading. Like I read Light in August, Faulkner's book in 10th grade. Did not understand a word of it, but I read the whole thing and my older sister didn't, so I was better than her. I have many sisters. You'll see sisters a lot in my novels. There's a reason for that. Um, and uh but I really loved fantasy. I loved like epic fantasy. Um, but like the old school like white dudes writing about white dudes having adventures. And like um I love fantasy now because I feel like um it's it's broadened its horizon so much and you can find so many more stories there which is really really exciting for me um, but I loved all that but I also really loved stealing my little brother's books like the novelization of the Spider-Man movie and Animorphs and I would like sneak read those things because I felt like I shouldn't be reading them um, but they were the fun stories and they were the good stories and I think that's why I ended up in YA because after I graduated with a degree in English um, and read you know just like every dead man ever um, I was like I want to read some living people and um, it was just it was just dynamic and fun, but yeah, definitely those the the, the fantasy elements and um, those were those are a much larger influence on my career than Faulkner. You would never guess, though. Once you read my books, you'll be like, I definitely see the Faulkner in here.
1: I had so many weird interests as a teen. Oh my god! Also, did this go off? Nope, it's good. Okay. Um, Where to start? I got really into Latin in high school. Um, (laughs) Like we had we had a really good program in high school, and so that came with its whole like you know the mythology was obviously like a, a. segue, and the Percy Jackson books definitely helped. Um, But then um, from there, I delved more into the culture and the history, and it actually taught me a lot about um, what it takes to build a civilization, which turns out is very important for writing speculative fiction. On top of that, I was also really into Arthur C. Clarke. I feel like... It always endears me when I hear about teen girls latching on to things that sound just like so out of their ballpark, like um, that I'm reading these, these hard science fiction novels and uh, I dressed up as HAL 9000 three years in a row for Halloween. <laughs> and stuff like that, or like Vonnegut, Dostoevsky, I had so many weird niche interests, but they all stewed together and now I think you can see that coming through in the kind of books that I write.
0: Were there certain things in writing um, any of your recent books that you wanted to make sure to include in your stories, knowing that you'd have young readers?
1: One thing that was really important for me in the Abyss series um, is I had been reading a lot of YA fantasy where it was like the, um, you know, the girl gets kidnapped by the brooding bad boy, and uh, there's this uninterrogated consent dynamic that I was really, you know, it, it was rubbing me the wrong way the more I read and read and read these books where, you know, she's, she's a prisoner. You can't have a romance with her. She's a prisoner. So in the Abyss books, it was very, very important to me that um, the characters were fully aware of this power dynamic issue between them and that they could not have a romance between them while one of them was a prisoner. Uh, and, like, that's something that I want, I want kids to be more aware of, um, these power dynamics in relationships, um, and how they can impact things.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I really like, and, and this goes back to something you were saying when you were writing it and you realized that other character, probably when you envisioned it, she was like one note, she was the antagonist, she was there to make, make, Yeah. But then you realize, like, no, there's so much more going on there. She would have a reason for being this way. And that's something that I come back to again and again with my books is so often in media, there's the girl, and her role is to be the girl. And so, so she has to represent every girl. And if there is another woman, she's, she's competition, um and and i haven 't found that in my life like the the most nourishing and intense and complex relationships I have are with other women, and you know no offense to my husband our relationship is very simple we like each other a lot like it 's just there 's not yeah it's like it's which is a great foundation for a marriage by the way um and so, so for me, one thing that I come back to again and again is exploring these these female relationships, whether they're sisterhood or friendship, um, because we have so much to offer each other, and we have an experience, a lived-in experience that we understand. Um, with Slayer, particularly, one thing that was really important to me was that I capture the feel of watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because it's not a book about Buffy. Buffy is not the main character. Um, the main characters from the show are not really in it. Um, but I needed it to feel the same way that we felt when we were watching the show. Also, to make things easier, I also needed it to be an entry point. So if you've never watched a single episode of Buffy, it's still a really fun, engaging urban fantasy novel. And if you've watched a few episodes of Buffy, you're like, oh, this is great. And if you've watched every episode of Buffy ever and read all of the graphic novels, including making it through the Centaur Dawn plot point, (laughs) you know. Um... Then it's still a great novel. So I think that was actually the hardest part with Slayer is trying to make sure that it worked for every possible lay- level of reader um, from super familiar with Buffy to not at all familiar with Buffy. So that was just really easy. We did not revise it 14 times. <laughs> you guys, I wrote that book and I turned it in and my editor was like, um, well, you know when you like try a new look and your best friend, and you, you show it to your best friend, you're like, what do you think? And they're like, you have such nice eyes. Yeah, that's kind of what my editorial letter was. So I actually just rewrote it from scratch because like you want to get it right, right? Like you want to tell the story that you set out to tell and sometimes you don't get it right on the first try or the second or the third, sometimes the fourth. But yeah, so yeah, I wanted to capture that sense of like female friendship and then also what I felt when I was watching Buffy.
1: I had a similar process with Home Old Girls. My agent's in the I- audience. Hi, Tao. Uh, when I gave her the book for the first time, she went came back to me and said, this feels like it's in the wrong order. <laughs> and we've kind of had to redo the whole thing. <laughs> I wrote it in a month. It was too fast.
0: I also, it really stood out to me. Uh, I mean, I was a pretty avid reader as a young person and um, in both of uh, these books you have elements of um, one of the girls particularly spoke often about her religion. Um, We had same-sex couples in one of these books, and I wondered how you've seen um, kind of the YA genre change um, over the years, if you have, and... um, you know, what What does it mean to be a part of it for you now?
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's really gotten a lot more diverse in recent years, thanks to the efforts of the We Need Diverse Books Foundation, um, which started in 2014, um, which was kind of when I had I just finished a draft of The Abyss Surrounds Us, when that movement kind of started up. Um so like I have never worked in a Y industry that wasn't really consciously pushing for my, more diversity in it and I'm really thankful for it. Um, because we're seeing that, you know, bleed into other industries, too. We're seeing it bleed into science fiction and fantasy even more. Um, but to say that it's a new thing also discredits the work that has been done before. We have, you know, Ash by Melinda Lowe came out in 2010, um, which was a fantasy novel that reimagined Cinderella as a lesbian who falls in love with a huntress. And, um... So, like, th- those kind of works were there before, and now they're finally kind of getting their due. Um, and it's really a wonderful thing to see.
2: I feel like we can always do better in terms of representation, in terms of presenting the world as as the varied and fascinating thing that it is. And, and one thing that I love about YA is... We don't always get it right, but we care. Like, it, And I feel like across the board, people who are writing for young people care. We care about them, we care about their development, we care about um, presenting a world that, that reflects the world that they live in. Um, and and I really am so proud of being part of that community and, and the We Need Diverse Books. I, I love that foundation so much um, because I feel like just being aware um that you know the way the world traditionally has been presented in entertainment is not reflective of the way that the world really is. And I love um and I get so much hope from from Gen Z from my teens um the things that that they see and that are just like no big deal to them and like they accept and they move on and it's just like it's the things that were issues for me as a teenager growing up and the things that I saw other teens struggle with for for my kids it's like yeah okay cool Next. Um, and, and I love that, and it gives me so much hope. And I feel a tremendous, like, it's a privilege and a responsibility writing for them. And I do love, like you know like I said, we don't always get it right. But we're trying. And like, I feel like the community as a whole of young adult writers genuinely cares. And we're always trying to do better and have those dialogues and have that communication and, and lift up the voices that um, we haven't been able to access in the past, especially.
0: A common thread in both of your books is family, as you've already talked about a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask you how you decide or how you go about bringing in realistic elements to these fantastical worlds of pirates and demons and slayers. Um, how do you decide what you know, realistic elements that readers can connect with to bring in and how do you also build these imaginative, um, adventurous places that we get to come be a part of as we read?
2: I feel like genre fiction at its best tells true stories. You're telling a real story, it's just heightened. So everything is heightened. So let's say you have a sister. Let's say you have an older sister. And she's good at everything. She's super smart. And every time you get into class, they're like, oh, you're Erin's little sister. And you're like, yes, I'm Erin's little sister. Um, I'm not speaking from personal experience. <laughs> and, and like that competitiveness. Like, let's say you beat her on the ACT. And you tell her your score. And her response is, well, with a score that high, shouldn't you be getting better grades? Mm-hmm. Again. Just making this up off the top of my head; these are not personal experiences. Um, but, but you know that dynamic, that competitiveness, and like, and I feel like the sister dynamic—you love your sisters more than anyone else, and you also really hate them a lot of the time. And you can say terrible things about your sister, but if somebody else said that terrible thing about your sister, like you would destroy them, because no one else is allowed to say that about your sister. Only you're allowed to say that about your sister. Um, And so like, so I love bringing that sister dynamic in only instead, one of them is the one who's always been capable and good at everything and the leader and then suddenly the other one's a slayer. So, like, how does that change their dynamic? Everything is thrown into flux. Like, um, suddenly the sister who was, like, the nice one that took care of everybody is the one who can slay demons like nobody's business. Like, how does that change things? And I love using those genre elements to tell those very, like, real personal stories. And I feel like the more you anchor the fantasy in the real world, the more accessible it makes the fantasy because your readers are like, I understand this. Like, yeah, you might not understand suddenly having the ability to leap up the side of buildings and, like you fight the apocalypse, but you understand the moment where suddenly, you know, you beat your sister at something and the entire dynamic changes and you're trying to find, like, a new normal. I really love my sister now, by the way, you guys. <laughs> Most of the time.
0: As someone with a sister who's 13 months older than me, I really connected. But also, Emily, in Whole Metal Girls, there's um, the oldest child fighting for the siblings and that Just was such an emotional piece of this and yet the world they're living in is so unfamiliar to me but I still felt connected to the emotion so how'd you do that
1: I mean yeah that's it's definitely an oldest child thing being feeling like you've got to be responsible you got to be the the person who um sets the example for the younger siblings and then also on top of that, Asia is an orphan. Um, so not only is she the oldest child, she has been thrust into the responsibility of taking care of her younger kid or younger kid siblings. So um, that is something that I I hope I did well because I personally am not an orphan. I do have one younger sister. <laughs> um, but a theme that arises in um, books that aren't Hall Middle Girls. I think Hall Middle Girls is the exception with the corpus of my work so far. Is I have very impressive parents. They're a Astronomers, they both have PhDs. They're, uh, I'll call them up and be like, oh, what are you doing? They're like, we're in Chile, observing this strange astronomical phenomenon. We're like, okay, okay. sure, yeah, well, um, I made something blow up in space today. is that that cool? Um, so the, the theme that arises more in my work is uh, the fear of disappointing your parents. <laughs> and uh, especially in like the abyss books, um, my protagonist grew up, uh, you know, raising sea monsters her whole life. Um, and then gets kidnapped by the people that these these sea monsters are raised to fight and forced to raise a sea monster for them, which betrays the entire ideological system that she has been raised on. Um, and she has to kind of grapple with the... Um, fall out of that, um, not even c- in confronting her family because, you know, she's a, she's a prisoner on a pirate ship. She can't really go, hey, m- hey, mom, dad, what do you think about this? Um, but it's on her mind constantly, and I hope that's something that's very relatable, <laughs> even what? though pirates and sea monsters maybe not so much.
0: Somehow you make it feel relatable, you know? Um, what do you think the future holds for this genre, and what part do you want to play in it? Well, your books span all both of you. Actually, that is one thing that
2: I love about YA is I feel like there's tremendous freedom because YA readers like good books. And so I feel like sometimes as adult readers, we get into the, like, I only read thrillers. I only read crime fiction. I only read nonfiction. I only read books with James Patterson's name on them, which, congratulations, there's a lot of those. Um... That type of thing. And so, but, but young adult readers, like they'll read contemporary, they'll read fantasy, they'll read sci-fi, they'll read, like, they just want a good story. Um, and it's given me a lot of freedom as a storyteller to sort of jump genre to genre to genre. Um, and I feel very lucky that my readers have followed me, especially when I was like, yes, and now this new book is a gender swap obscure 15th century Romanian prince. And they were like, OK. <laughs> my, my agent was like, OK. My editor was like, OK. And I was like, OK. Um, and I, and I just love that I have that freedom as, as a storyteller. Um, I would love to continue working in YA. Um, I don't know what's next. Like, like I'm doing another retelling um, in November. I have a book called The Guinevere Deception, which is a retelling of the Arthurian legends centered around Guinevere. Because I was like, cool, the only woman that matters in these stories messes everything up because she falls in love with the wrong person. Cool. That's great. I like that a lot. I don't like that. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna fix it. Um and so so I love I, I would love to just continue to tell stories like that, to tell um stories about strong girls doing cool things and messing up and fixing it. Um I would also love to write more middle grade and um uh it's like people when people read my books, especially The Dark Son of Elizabeth Frankenstein Stein or Anti Darken, and then they meet me in person, they're like, Her? Um <laughs> Because I think they expect to come and see like death, darkness, and I'm like, hey guys! Um, but I love that you know we have we have stories where you can explore all of those things and be all of those things. So I'd love to write some middle like funny middle grade. I'd love to expand into adult genre. I really want to write horror. Are you surprised? You're not. Um, and yeah, I, I just I just I just want to do this forever, you guys. So thank you for supporting books yeah, and, and supporting literacy, too. like thank you, I have a career before you, and I have three kids to put through college, so please keep doing it.
1: I feel like there are two fronts that I'm really excited for in YA. One is, of course, the inclusion of broader perspectives of people who have not had a chance to tell their stories yet. I feel like these people are really breaking through in the genre right now, and we're getting so much publisher support for them, and it's wonderful to see. So that's something that I don't I don't have to have any part in, of. I just wanna see these stories and, uh, Watch people cultivate these stories. The other part is, I want it to be so weird. Like, the, like when you're when you're saying like, "Oh, I'm going to do a, a Vlad the Impaler retelling, but she's a girl now, and uh, but she's just as vicious." I'm like, "Yes, I'm on board. That this is this is something I have never heard before, and it's so strange." Or um, like, there's. I mean, Wilder Girls just hit the New York Times bestseller list, and it's basically like annihilation, but with queer teenage girls, which is incredible. Um, and I want people to just push at all these weird worlds and weird stories that we can be telling uh, because there are just so many possibilities.
0: Sounds like something I want to be a part of as a reader. Anybody else in here? Um, so, yeah, we're actually going to do audience questions if you have any. Um, just raise your hand, and I'll bring you the mic. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I really love both of you. I read your books. You. Um, Kirsten, for you in particular, you do a lot of um, you got the, lot of the Impaler books, you got the Elizabeth Frankenstein books, now the Guinevere one. Do you find that it's helpful that readers have a basic concept of the uh, construct of the story, or does it really kind of bite you in the butt? Are people like very on top of you with reviews and stuff? Like, do you think it's it helps you with the world building because they've already got an idea in their head, or how does it fuel your process?
2: That is such a good question. Um, I definitely did not think that I would do as many retellings as I have. Um, but the fun of a retelling is, it, is, I call it, it's the Marvel quality of it. Like You go to a Marvel movie because you know what to expect. And like you know that you like Marvel movies, if you like Marvel movies. If you don't, uh, condolences. Like, because well, you're out of luck. Um, and, uh, and I feel like it's the same with retellings. You're building on a baseline of familiarity. And so readers already know like, oh, I remember reading Frankenstein in high school. Um, Oh, I have heard of Dracula. Vlad Dracul, like no people have not. I um, heard of Vlad Dracul, but uh, but but you're building on that familiarity, and so then the fun of it is is building that new story around the old story and discovering it together. And I do feel like there's a lot of value there because that familiarity makes people more likely to pick it up. Like the cover for the Dark Center of Elizabeth Frankenstein is pink. It's like pink material that kind of looks like skin in an unnerving way. We had another version that was splattered with a substance called I can't believe it's not blood. Um... They didn't go with that one. They thought it was a step too far. Um, but it's a very pink cover, but a lot of a lot of teenage boys and a lot of men will pick it up because they're like, oh, Frankenstein. I know Frankenstein. I like Frankenstein. I want to see this version of a Frankenstein story. Um, and so you do, it's, it's kind of like a little bit of a cheat. Um, somebody already feels connected to the story you're telling, so they're more likely to give it a chance. It does mean, particularly as a woman, I am... I don't know. Maybe Neil Gaiman got this for the Graveyard Book, but I see a lot of views that say, "Isn't this just fan fiction?" And I'm like, first of all, fan fiction is rad. Let's not put down fan fiction. But second of all, like, no, it's not the same thing. Like, fan fiction. fiction is fiction, exactly. And so, like, so you do have a little bit of the people who who take that as an excuse to like look down and say, like, oh, it's not original. But we're always engaging with the same stories. We're telling the same stories over and over and over again. And I like to tell people, especially people who want to be writers, the idea doesn't matter. Ideas inherently have no value. That idea that you've always had, that you've always wanted to write a book, guess what? It's worthless until you actually write the book. Because the telling of the story is what matters. And so whether that's a retelling, whether that's fame fiction, whether that's original fiction that's based entirely on like a concept that you came up with at 4am when you couldn't sleep because you were wondering if your parents were proud of you. Your parents are proud of you. Um, I can tell you right now, I'm a mom and I'm super proud of you. Make um, like, that's what matters, is what you bring to the story. And that's what I think is really exciting about retellings. Um, I really, really love this new spate of retellings that we have. Um, Julie C. Dow uh, wrote *Force of a, a Thousand Lanterns, which is, um, which is a Snow White retelling. And, but, she, but it was influenced by who she is and, and where she came from and her family. And like, it's such an interesting way to approach old stories in a new way. And I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of value there. We can talk after.
0: this is for both of you and actually going into what you just said about ideas you don't have to go into details if you don't want to or you can't but has there ever been an idea that you're like I love this idea and you're trying to work it and it just doesn't work and if you actually made it work how
1: did you make it work all my ideas are perfect (laughs) (laughs) including the space vampires tower we're going to do it someday (laughs)
2: Um, yeah, I have some ideas, but sometimes I think I get to like, this idea is really cool and people will love this idea and I'll start writing it. But a cool idea can only sustain you so far. If there's not a reason for you to be telling that story, then it's going to falter. Like, I can't tell you how many 20 or 30,000 word book starts I have that were a cool idea. I didn't care about the characters. There wasn't a reason for me to be telling that story. Um, I, I always say that I have every, every book that I write has a central question and it's a question that I'm exploring. It's not you know, it's not the idea. It's not the characters. It's, it's what am I exploring by telling this story. Um, and that to me matters way, way more than the idea. That being said, I did have an idea um, since I was a teenager. I loved it. I kept trying to write it different ways. I wrote two complete manuscripts. Pro tip, don't ever write a book and then write the sequel before the first book sells. Because guess what? Then you have two books that don't sell. <laughs> two for the price of none. Um, it was great. Good times. But a few years later, I finally clicked on like how I could tell that story. And um, I cannibalized those two books for parts in that 15 years of thinking about an idea. And I wrote a book. Um, so I just feel like no writing is ever a waste. Even if the idea might not work later, you're going to use parts of it later
1: yeah definitely I definitely agree with that and um that reminded me of one thing which is that like I always have to have something to write towards I have to have an ending and so a lot of my false starts are like I have the aesthetic, I have maybe some interesting characters I don't really know what they're for yet though I don't know where they go and so um the the thing that al- almost always seals the deal for me of this is gonna be a thing is when I realize, oh this is how it ends uh because i need I need my I need to know what happens right before the credits roll I need to
2: things up in space, Emily. I've never blown anything up
1: in space. I don't, <laughs> don't either. I just say that I do and people buy it.
0: <laughs> well, I also want to know, since this is set in space, what role did your parents play in it? Or did they?
1: I'll, I'll run things by them sometimes. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, oh, like, it, if something decompresses, how is it actually going to, like, how, how does that work? Uh, like, is it going to be, like, gale force winds like we see in the movies? It's not. It's not going to be Wins. <laughs> so, um, and I've actually gone to my parents sometimes with pro- plot problems and been like, okay, so she needs to find a spaceship that's. Hidden somewhere in the galaxy, and no one else has found it. But somehow, this teenager has to figure it out. What What can she do? And they'll be like, "Oh, okay. So maybe uh, she figures out how to, um, from the spectroscopy of um, what they what they what she's uh, reading on her instruments, she can detect, even though it's hidden in an asteroid field where no one would pick it up visually, um, the paint on the out outer hull. Um, she would be able to detect that, and then that's how she finds it.
2: Cool. Yeah. Okay. My mom's a therapist. She doesn't read my books anymore. Sometimes she does, but uh, I I traumatized her pretty bad with some of the earlier ones.
0: Well, this is a good segue to this question then because uh, reading through these two books and um, obviously in your other works as well, there's a lot of, and you want to be moving into horror, um, there's a lot of painful, emotional, kind of scary stuff, um, you know, demons and... um, I physically felt like I was also um, having metal put into my body as I was reading whole metal girls. Um, How do you decide with young readers, you know, how much to expose them to, how far is too far, how dark is too dark, how do you um, make those decisions and what are your thoughts about, you know, putting um, kind of scary and dark ideas in front of
2: young readers? Uh, I actually have really strong opinions about that. Are you shocked? I don't have strong opinions about anything. Um,
0: and you have teen, teen, 18
2: I have daughter? A, I have a 15-year-old son, a daughter and a 13-year-old son and okay. a 6-year-old son. And he's the creepiest of all of them. <laughs> um, I actually get to write on his intro note to his first grade teacher, if he doodles gravestones and cemeteries on his schoolwork, it's not cause for concern. It's just his favorite aesthetic. Um, and sure enough, first week, they had free drawing time. Guess what he came home with a picture of? Yep. Um, so so I feel like there's a lot of value in dark things in books for young readers. And the value is this. Kids go through a lot and they see a lot. And to tell kids that they cannot access stories that have intense dark things is to say those parts of your life are wrong and bad and you shouldn't share them and no one should know about them. But also, maybe it's a kid with a really happy life, with a really normal, safe supported childhood, and that is the way that they can access those bigger feelings and those darker feelings in a safe way. They can fictionally experience it. If it's too much for it, they'll close it and they'll put it down. Kids are very, very good at knowing their limits. Um, and, And it also creates empathy. So maybe your child has never been through these big things. Maybe they've never been through persecution. Maybe they've never been through having metal inserted into their body so that they can become a cyborg and protect their younger siblings. And hopefully they never will because that's a really extreme circumstance. But
0: but and also have a very sick sibling. That's Yeah,
2: yeah. And like and and it's a safe way for them to go through those feelings, to experience those emotions, to learn to empathize with people who have and are without having to do it themselves so so i think it's dual-sided it's it's saying to the kids who are going through very dark very serious very scary things we see you and your experience has value and your story has value and also to the kids who aren't going through that learn to empathize and also it's a safe way for them to access that
1: definitely and i i really like what you say about kids knowing their limits like um kids kids are gonna find uh, things that maybe go beyond what the adults around them think is appropriate for them. Like, uh, when I was in seventh grade, I was reading Michael Crichton because my uh, seventh grade biology teacher had a Crichton collection and she would let me take them. And uh, she would hand me one. She'd say, this has a sex scene. Will your mother go ballistic? And i go, no! Um, but like these adult th- themes um, are things that kids are, uh, kids have big imaginations is the other thing. Um, they're already imagining this kind of stuff uh, and they, they can definitely handle uh, anything you throw at them. I also feel like
2: um, a lot of these things we write in such a way that if the, ch- if, the, if the teen knows what's happening, then they know what's happening and if they don't know what's happening, then they don't know what's happening. <laughs> that makes sense. Like there was a, there's a specific scene that takes place in, in Now I Rise which is the second book of the Anti-Dark and Trilogy and it's one where if you know what's happening you know exactly what's happening. But if say you're a 13 year old who doesn't know what's happening, they would have no idea you guys. And like I worked very hard on that scene to make sure that I walked that line. But like my son was reading, um, this was several years ago, he's reading The Fifth Wave and he really liked it but he was starting to have nightmares. So he's like, Mom I think I'm going to stop reading this and maybe I'll come back to it in a couple years. And like like I really trust kids to, to find the stories that speak to them and <laughs> to set aside the ones that are too much. Well, before we wrap
0: this up, I'd love to ask you both what are you working on now? What do you have coming out next? What can we watch for from you?
2: So, um, The Guinevere Deception, which I already mentioned, comes out November 5th. I will be at Mysterious Galaxy on November 5th for a signing. I love Mysterious Galaxy. We have the best indie. No no offense to Los Angeles, but we have the best indie. Um, and you know we have great a lot of great Indies. But um, so yeah, I'll be there on November 5th for the Guinevere deception. In January, Chosen Comes out, which is the sequel to Slayer, Continuing the Merry Adventures of our brave band of Watchers, trying to you know make sure the world keeps being a world. And then um, Guinevere is the first book in a trilogy. so more books, more and more and more. I ran it, so guys, this is so cute. because remember, again, my kids don't think I'm cool at all ever I was picking my son up from middle school yesterday and this girl stops she's like are you writing more are you writing more great books and I was like yes (laughs) I am (laughs) I would offer to take you home with me but that's kidnapping but I love you bye um yeah so I'm never gonna stop you're never getting rid of me
1: I just want to say that I am so jealous of San Diego. There is no dedicated sci-fi and fantasy indie that I know of in Los Angeles, and I want one so bad. There was, there's a there's a book. Um, if I'm being honest, by um, Emily and Austin Um, Wibroca. um they uh, wrote a, in that book. They mentioned like a uh, sci-fi and fantasy indie on Fairfax, which is right by where I live. And I was like, I hate you guys. Don't make me imagine this. Anyway, so um, you got a bit of weight for me. Um, my next book is called Bonza Brass. It comes out on April 7th and is the first in a trilogy. And I pitch it as basically the road to El Dorado meets Star Wars. It's these two guys who are at a pilot academy and they're best friends. And then one day, one of them gets outed as the prince of the empire. And the other guy realizes, oh, God, everyone's trying to kill him. Basically tucks him under his elbow and runs in the <laughs> other direction. And we go from there.
0: All right. well, we'll look forward to those. Can we ha- please give a big round of applause to our amazing authors? Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conversation with Abby Hamblin. I'd like to invite you to check out all our podcasts at the Union Tribune at sandiegouniontribune.com slash podcasts. And if you like this one, please subscribe, rate us, share it with a friend. Listen again. Tell somebody you know about it. We really appreciate it. I appreciate all the listens, comments, support. Thank you so, so much. We'll see you next time.